brother. Can everyone hear me? Make sure I'm on here. Let me move. Well, good morning, church. Uh, welcome to Redeemer. I am uh, excited to be able to share God's word with you today. Uh, it was about a month and a half ago, uh, Pastor Matt and I, we meet weekly at 5.30 in the morning, and we've been meeting here at the church. And so we were both groggy at those times, but he told me, he said, David, uh, at the end of the year here, I'm going to be gone on vacation with some family. Denton is going to be expecting his second child. And as we've discussed, we would like for you to preach and so I was like, I don't know, but within a short amount of time, probably five to ten minutes, we both agreed that this would be good, not only for all of us, but as a family to worship and to sit under God's teaching together. So uh, again, for those who don't know me, my name is David. I've been a member of Redeemer for a little while now, and I'm grateful to have uh, been able to build such great relationships with you all. Um, today, we will be in the book of 2 Corinthians uh, and if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And sort of the, the order for our time together this morning, we're going to work through the first half of chapter 8, right? And understand what is being said by the Apostle Paul. And then we're going to key, key in on a specific verse, being verse 9. We're going to expound upon the truths that are contained within it, and bring it full circle regarding Advent and the Christmas season. So to give you a little bit of context, background for us landing in the middle of a book here, this is Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. In his previous letter, 1 Corinthians, at the end of the letter, he instructed them with regards to a collection that he and the other apostles were taking up for the saints that were in Jerusalem. Most likely they were poor because of their Christian faith, and so Paul saw this as a good thing. But where we find ourselves today in chapter 8 is somewhere in the meantime, they have lost focus. Whether it's doubt, frustration, or thinking that this is unfair, Paul has to write to them again to encourage them, to lift their hearts and minds to Jesus. He seeks to remind them of their commitment and the confidence that he has in their faith in the Lord. So if you would, most likely you're already there. I will pull up my Bible. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to be starting in verse 1. Find it here. Awesome. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others 
but your love also is genuine. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. If you would, bow with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for a time that we can gather as your people in your name to sit under the teaching of your word. And I pray now that you would use me as an instrument to teach your church and that your spirit would go out and build her up and point her to you. Lord, bless our time. We love you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting out here in these first couple verses, Paul is going to lead by example to hopefully rise up something in the Corinthian believers. And he talks about this church in Macedonia. So for any Mediterranean geographical scholars in the audience here today, uh, if you guys know where Italy is, it's the boot shape, just east you have Greece, and just to the north you have Macedonia. Corinth is in the south, and obviously the church in Macedonia is in the north. And so Paul wants the Corinthians to know of what God has done among these churches, that namely they have opened their hearts to other brothers and sisters in need, and Paul sees this as a praiseworthy thing. He says, we want you to know. We don't want you to be unaware of what God has done through your brothers and sisters who are miles away from you. Most likely, you've never met them. But note their condition. Severe affliction, extreme poverty, yet they had an abundance of joy. And it, it almost seems that... Uh, as Christians, we can take any situation that comes our way because if we have Christ, we have everything that we need. Whether it be extreme poverty, whether it be affliction, whether it be testing, if we have Christ, we have everything. Recall for a second the encounter between Jesus and the poor widow in the temple and the gospel. How many people put in large sums, but how she put in two copper coins, which made a penny. Jesus told his disciples that she put in more than all of those who had contributed. For others had given out of their abundance, and she gave of everything she had. And I want us to see here that the amount in our case does not matter. Rather, the spirit behind the giving does. To have Christ and nothing else is everything. But how did they give? They gave out of what they had not what they did not have. That's what according to their means means. Paul wasn't saying go take out a loan, go borrow from a friend to give. Give out of what you have. 
and they willingly gave beyond their means. Paul didn't ask for a percentage. He didn't give them an amount. And despite all of their difficulties, they did not turn inward. They did not come up with excuses. Rather, their concern was for their brothers and sisters. And we see that specifically in verse 4. They begged earnestly to participate in this act of grace. And they would see it as Paul granting them a great favor to take part. So most likely, Paul had not come to them because of their poverty. He was not going to burden them with such a thing. But they begged to take part. They did not plead poverty to evade an obligation. Rather, they pleaded to be a part of it. This is a rhetorical question, but I think it is warranted. When was the last time you earnestly asked a brother or sister how you could serve them? Right? Did you give up after they said no? Did you keep asking, hey, I would love to, to serve you, to love you where you are, whatever that may be, whether it be uh, making a meal, watching the kids, whatever it is. And I know the, the situation with the Macedonians and the Corinthians is very specific, so we can't blow this out of proportion, but I think that we can learn a lesson from them, that giving is of our entire selves, our skills, our love, what we do. And all of this, again, was motivated by their desire to serve others. And what did they do? What was the procedure that they took to do such a thing? Out of extreme poverty, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by God's will to the apostles. And that is verse 5. And it's interesting that Paul didn't expect this. He didn't expect anything from them. David Garland, a New Testament scholar, he writes this in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. He says, Paul gives the impression that he was taken aback by their eagerness and generosity. They gave beyond their means and did so without Paul's encouragement, let alone his insistence. If it comes from grace, then it cannot come from coercion. If God has put it in our hearts to be gracious and generous, then there is no amount of external convincing or coercion that could take place that could bring it out of us. If God has started it in us, that is the issue. Generosity stems from a devotion to Christ, from knowing him and being known by him. That is verse 1 through 5. In this next section, verses 6 through 8, Paul changes the focus. Rather than highlighting the example of brothers and sisters far away, he now wants to focus back in on the Corinthians' responsibility. And these upcoming verses will be an admonition for them to follow through on their initial commitments. And rather than scold them for pulling back, he praises them for their initial enthusiasm. Here in verse 6, Titus is mentioned uh, he had previously been among the churches of Corinth to deliver Paul's previous letter. This is actually a letter that we do not have, but it's referenced in chapter 7. So Titus was to be sent again to them to complete among them this act of grace. And this is sort of Paul saying, be ready when he comes. Be sure in your heart and your mind, for when Titus comes, he wants to, to complete among you this act of grace for brothers and sisters who are far away. And in verse 7, he appeals to their growth as Christians as a reason to remain faithful. As you grow in all these 
things. What's he say? In love, in faith, in speech, in knowledge. Make sure you excel in this too. Do not neglect to give in this way, to grow in your spiritual maturity and your Christian walk in this also. But Paul's got to be clear. This is not a command. I say this not as a command. He takes the freedom of the Christian seriously. They may choose to partake or not. It's voluntary. But what Paul seeks to do here is to hold the Corinthians to their word. May their yes be a yes. May their no be a no. They had previously committed, and Paul wants to see them grow in their commitment. He seeks to test and prove that their love is genuine. Recall what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. He says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Macedonians, empowered by God, acted out of poverty and affliction and gave generously. What will the Corinthians do? Will they shriek back? Will they pull away? Or will they walk by faith? Now to verse 9. Paul seeks to finish his argument in a sense. If the earnest example of your brothers and sisters who are in a distant land was not enough to encourage you, to lift up your hearts, to move you in the right direction, maybe the example of our Lord himself will. Let's read it again. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty may be rich. Such a beautiful picture of the gospel, so tightly bound in a single sentence. This will be the latter focus of our sermon. But suffice it to say, simply put, what Christ has done for the church, his people, serves as an example in what they do for others. And not only that, it empowers them. Can someone who has received such mercy and undeserved grace harden their hearts towards others? If we were loved when we were unlovely, how much more should we love those around us? It's a sobering thing to think about. Verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. Another way to translate that in the Greek is advice. In this matter, I give my advice. You started doing this. You started. Now finish doing it well. May your desire and your readiness to do it be matched by you completing it. It's to be done according to what you have, not what you don't have. But given great faith. Given great faith. Verse 13 and 14. Paul does not want to put uh, an unnecessary burden on them. But what he will do in just a moment will glean from the scriptures, glean from the Old Testament principles that should motivate and encourage them all the more. So all of this is about fairness, equity, and probably many sermons could be preached just on that topic. He says, your abundance now supplies their need. They're hurting, and they need your help. But so that their abundance may also supply your need in the future. 
See, it's not that everyone gets the same thing, but everyone gets what they need. Equity. And here in verse 13, Paul gleans from the book of Exodus chapter 16. And many of you may recall this, when Israel had left Egypt, they were in the wilderness, and they grumbled. And oh, did they grumble very often. And so what did God do? God was merciful, and he provided manna. What is it, right? Flaky substance that Israel would eat and be satisfied in. But some took more and some took less in the, da- the daily gathering. However, when it was measured, there was no lack, as God was gracious to provide for his people. So Paul seeks to boost their confidence in ours that God is able to use whatever we give and to multiply it greatly for his glory and for his people. So what can we take away from Paul's lesson? Again, 15 short verses that true giving is of oneself, not just of money. It involves the heart. The good news of the gospel is not about what we can get from God, rather what God has given us in Christ Jesus. Generosity as we see it comes from knowing Jesus Christ. He is our example and our motivation. And lastly, God is able to use whatever we bring. In the next chapter, chapter 9, Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Whether little or much, if done in faith, God can and will use it mightily for his purposes. So now we've worked our way through the passage You may be asking yourself, what does any of this have to do with Advent? And I'm glad that you would ask such a question. If you would, key back in on verse 9 with me. While it's true that Jesus gave us an example to walk in, however, Jesus was more than just an example. Um, The culture around us today uh, will say that Jesus is the reason for the season, and while we would agree, the message isn't complete. Right? It, is, it is just Jesus in a manger. Decorate your house, wrap the presents. But Jesus in a manger, and it stays there, and it's good. But there's a bigger picture of redemption that is unfolding before us, and the culture around us doesn't want to hear it. We cannot merely reduce Jesus to an example of how to love our neighbors when he came for so much more than just that. Advent is about Jesus' coming, his arrival to us, and let us first turn our attention to Jesus prior to his coming. This is our second point. Jesus is king. The first part of verse 9 says, he was rich. And it may be odd for us to think about how, how God can be rich, how Jesus himself is rich. But let's, let's, let's work through this. Let's think this out. Don't think that Jesus merely began to live when he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus existed far before the manger. Remember, he is eternal. There was never a time he did not exist. He was in the beginning with God and was God. He is truly God, truly man. He is the in- image of the invisible God, rich in power and possessions and status. But as God, does he not own and possess everything that we see and do not see? Paul tells us this of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, if that doesn't speak of power and richness and might, I don't know what will. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. If the God of the universe were to pull back his hand, would not all of earth go into turmoil? Did God not say in Isaiah chapter 66, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be. Yeah, I, find, I find it interesting that God would speak to Isaiah in such a manner. To think that Israel could build God a place for him to dwell in. The, the creator and maker of all that we see, the universe itself could be contained in four square walls. Recall in the Psalms <laughs> where God would say, if I were hungry, would I ask you? Are not all the cattle of the fields mine? All is God's. Power, riches, status. And recall the book of Job, our good friend Job who we closely identify with. When God finally responded to Job, all of his groanings and his complaints, he said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Did you determine its measurements? Did you create the boundaries of the sea and carve out its depths? Did you create the stars and the galaxies above? Or do you command the animals on the earth? Do you provide for them? This is our God, rich in power, rich in status. This is the pre-incarnate word of God. This is Jesus, the eternal son. And all of these things reveal how rich Jesus truly is. And there are plenty more, but again, for time's sake. We'll move on to our third point, that Jesus, the servant. Part B of verse 9 says, yet for your sake became poor. Recall Jesus in Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man came to be, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. As it is Advent, let us begin with his poverty. Charles Spurgeon wrote these words. Hopefully you can track. It's kind of a long quote, so bear with me. But I think it does it, it truly paints what's, what's happening here for Jesus becoming poor, for Jesus taking on flesh, being born as a baby. He says, now wonder, the infinite has become an infant. He upon whose shoulders the universe hangs now hangs at his mother's bosom. He who created all things and bears up the pillars of creation has now become so weak that he must be carried in the arms of a mother. He clothed himself in flesh. The eternal Son of God became a child. He cried, he slept, he needed his diaper changed. How crude. 
This is poverty. And Spurgeon is not finished, and neither are we. This is not the end of his poverty. He says, trace him, Christian. He has left you his manger to show you how God came down to man. He has given you his cross to show you how man can ascend to God. Follow him. Follow him all his journey through. Begin with him in the wilderness of temptation. See him fasting there and hungering with the wild beasts around him. Trace him along his weary way as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is the byword and scorn of those who were his own, rejected. Follow him until at last you meet him among the olives of Gethsemane. See him sweating great drops of blood. Follow him to the cruel whips of the Roman soldiers. With weeping eye, follow him to the cross of Calvary. See him nailed there. Mark his poverty, so poor that they stripped him naked from head to foot and exposed him to the face of the sun. So poor that when he asked them for water, they gave him vinegar to drink. So poor that his head is set with a crown of thorns and death. Jesus would become poor for our sake, and too little do we think about this reality. It has become commonplace. This does not wow us as it should. It does not humble us, and it does not bring upon us worship as it should. As Paul would say, bear with me in a little foolishness. This is an earthly example. But think of the richest person you can imagine. Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, you name it. They have more money individually than probably any of us combined in hundreds of lifetimes. But imagine them leaving everything, giving it all away, no savings accounts, no stocks, no bonds, nothing. And residing among the poorest in the world. Would not every news station be asking for an interview? Would it not be in the headline of every paper and website that someone with such power would leave it all and to go and dwell as the, the world would see it with the detestable, with the gross, with the people we don't want to associate with. But God has done this for us. He's done it for our sake, for you and for me. Don't doubt it. We have to see the full picture. We come to our fourth point. Jesus, the substitute. Paul finishes verse 9 by saying, so that you by his poverty may be rich. The righteous for the unrighteous. The innocent for the guilty. The rich for the poor. The godly for the ungodly. Jesus had to be made poor for our sake so that we could be rich. Paul, just a couple, couple chapters before this, would say, for our sake, for you, for me, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, without Jesus becoming, becoming poor, we have no hope. But this is the beauty of the gospel message. When we were poor because of sin, we are rich in Jesus Christ. 
By his perfect life, he merited what we could not, and by his death, he paid the price for our sins so that through faith in him, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God the Father. This is our only hope and our source of greatest joy. Jesus Christ crucified. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son for us to be a propitiation for our sins. John writes that in his first epistle. Truly, truly, Jesus is a true gift of love and righteousness for us. To close our time, I just have a couple of thoughts for us. Again, this is the last message in our Advent series. Christmas time is a season for family, for friends, for generosity, and for presence. Enjoy this season as best you can. We are in unprecedented times. The world is losing its mind. But know that love did not come down on Christmas Day, that Jesus did not humble himself to be born in a manger, to die on the cross, so that we can merely give gifts and decorate our homes. He came to be made poor so that we could be made rich. Give great gifts. Spend time with family and friends. Enjoy the season. Just do not get caught in the hallmark trap. Right, that Jesus just came to be born in a manger, and then we go and live our lives. So much more than that. For the Christian here today, I would encourage you with this. Recall the great love of our God. Teach this message to your children. Share it with your friends and your loved ones. It is the greatest gift. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate generosity, and it's the only one that can bring lasting joy and peace to both our lives and to the world around us. And for those here today who don't believe in Jesus, hear me out for just a moment. Jesus did not promise us material wealth as people throughout the centuries have most used this passage to preach that. However, he did promise that those who come to him, he will never cast out or turn away. If that is you today, would you consider Jesus? Would you consider your sin and how for your sake Jesus died that you may be forgiven? Would you consider his life and his rising from the grave that you may have life and have it abundantly? The author of Hebrews says, today, today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year, today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ, that love indeed came down on Christmas Day to be made poor so that we could be made rich. I'd like to close with reading from the hymn, What Child Is This? I feel it's only timely. What child is this who's laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch our keeping. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Nails and spear shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me, for you. Hail, 
Hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. If you would, join me in prayer. God of heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the power that is in your gospel, that it enriches us to live for you. However, you did not come to merely set an example. You came to redeem. You came to restore. Help us to not lose that focus, that the baby in the manger would soon grow up and be nailed to the cross. For me, for us, for the world. Help us to rest in that truth and to remember that he rose from the grave to defeat death and to defeat sin. Grant us that hope always, now and especially in this season, that we may be a light to the world and a place of great hope in the midst of darkness. God, we thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.